Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I ask my guests the question, what five seemingly insignificant but memorable things from your life would you choose to preserve in a time capsule? Four that you cherish, and one that you would like to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. And you know what? They tell me. Doing that in this episode is the actor Tim McInerney. Tim is possibly still best remembered as Lord Percy and Captain Darling in different series of the comedy Blackadder, in which he starred with his university friend Rowan Atkinson. But that is a tiny part of what has been a stellar career. Over 20 feature films, including 101 and 102 Dalmatians, Notting Hill, The Hippopotamus, Johnny English Reborn, Eddie the Eagle, and most recently, The Aeronauts. Dozens of major television roles in a wide variety of shows, such as Edge of Darkness, Blackadder, The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, Spooks, Miss Marple, Doctor Who, Inspector George Gently, Midsummer Murders, Strangers, Harlots, 2012, Outlander, Sherlock, Game of Thrones, National Treasure, and The Trial of Christine Keeler, to name but a few. He's performed to great acclaim in many BBC Radio 4 dramas and is a renowned stage actor as, for example, Iago in Othello at the Globe, Mick in The Caretaker at the Royal Exchange Manchester, Frankenfurter in The Rocky Horror Show in the West End, and in Pravda with Anthony Hopkins at the National Theatre. He's also an absolute darling, <laughs> if I might suddenly become Stephen Fry for a moment, as you'll find out now. Oh, you'll also find out, or at least work out fairly quickly from our first topic, that this episode was recorded at the height of lockdown. Ha <laughs> ha, lockdown. Uh, hmm, I'd spit too if it wasn't socially irresponsible during a pandemic. Anyway, I hope you enjoy my chat with the lovely Tim McInerney. Tim McInerney, the three best actors in England. Hey! Hey! How many times have you heard that joke? I've never heard that before. 
I seem to remember it. It started off Tim McInerney, the three best actors in Oxford. Ah, right. Yes. Or alternatively, the three worst actors in Oxford. Well, I've heard one or two people say that, but <laughs> only, only out of reverse respect. Ah. <laughs> How are you? All right. I'm all right, mate. Yes, I'm very well. Yeah. Coping, yes. Yeah. It's very interesting being in the in the centre of London. I mean, right in the centre. Yeah. Uh, I, mean, I mean, I live like 10 minutes walk from Covent Garden, so... Um, we actually went for a walk yesterday through, I mean, normally we try and find the green bits around us, which are quite plentiful, actually, like Lincoln's Inn Fields and, and stuff. But um, yesterday we walked into Soho, and it's very odd. Apart from construction workers, there's nobody. God. We actually stood up uh, next to Eros on the uh, Piccadilly Circus. It gives a whole new meaning to uh, blimey, it's like Piccadilly Circus round here. <laughs> that, that, that now means it's incredibly quiet and traffic free. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a bit like sort of being in the day of the Triffids or something. Exactly. Weird. Yeah, as long as it doesn't turn into 28 days later. That's Yeah, <laughs> quite. Uh, anyway, now we're going to talk about five things from your life that you'd like to put into a time capsule. So, um, so what's your first item? My first item is, is a memory because I've always, uh, I've always loved books and was always taken to the library from when I was tiny by my mum. And there was one specific day, I still remember, when we went into the library, I'm holding her hand, walking into the library, and because you walk through the children's section to get to the adult section. Mm. I think that's the same with most libraries, the ones that still exist. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> And... We walked into the children's section and I stopped and she, she said, no, no, come on. And we walked through into the adult section. Uh, that was one of the most exciting moments of my life. I can remember every second of it. It was just being invited into a, into a whole new world. Because children quite often will become more interested in adult books, books that have got lots of pictures in it. That's fine. But you hit an age, don't you, where you suddenly go, no, I want more facts. I want more information. The world of children's books wasn't big enough. No. It wasn't challenging enough. The answers being given were too pat. Yeah. I guess. I mean, I guess. I don't really remember. I just, I just remember wanting desperately to be in that father room. And then one day she mm. took me there without telling me she was going to. <laughs> Bless her. <laughs> she must have noticed, though, the fact that you were constantly searching for more information in other sources. Exactly. And suddenly thought, right, now's the time. Yeah. My wife worked in a bookshop and, uh, and she had people coming in and asking and saying, what Dickens books have you got? And she said, right, well, um, is it for you? And she said, no, it's for my, my son. She said, oh, well, how old is he? And the woman said, well, he's dead, isn't he, Dickens? <laughs> that's brilliant <laughs> yes but you could see that she was doing the same sort of thing searching for something more detailed yeah and so what sort of things were you into was it literature that you wanted or was it just facts uh that's a that's a that's an interesting question um i was kind of fascinated by the natural world and everything i mean there was a point where i where i wanted to be a, a naturalist like david attenborough but um but then I realised that meant dealing with spiders, so that was out. <laughs> that was all over. <laughs> Things like that. And, and space and everything, you know. I mean, when, when we were kids, uh, yeah. we were fascinated by space because it was a new frontier. It was only just opening up. Yes, walking on the moon. 
great song. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> but it was mainly ways of seeing the world, which meant, which to me meant fiction, really, uh, has nearly always meant that. I mean, I, I do read biographies and I am fascinated by facts, but it's ways of thinking that interest me most. Mm. So do you remember what sort of books you were reading at that age? No. <laughs> no, basically. No, I don't really. I mean, I tried, I tried reading things way above my age and being fascinated by them. I, mean, I remember when I was 11 or something and my brother, my elder brother, um, gave me, uh, <laughs> gave me, um, Joy of Sex? Franz Kafka. Oh, Franz Kafka. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was a bit too old for me. But uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it blew my mind. I do remember. There was something about it because, I mean, I'd always grown up with words. There was a fascination with words, even when you didn't know what they, what they meant exactly. There was, a, there was a magic to the sound of them, always, for mm. me. Do you think that's what led you to acting? Yeah, I do, in the end. I think, I think that's what it is. I mean, I think I was very lucky with parents who encouraged me to read and to explore things like that. Um, and I also had wonderful English teachers. I always loved the English, English language and literature. And then actually acting, um, I was always going to be a novelist or a poet. So kind of a solitary occupation, actually, which as we know is the opposite of what we do. And then I was, I was forced to be in a school play when I was 14. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it at all. Um, but you didn't have a choice in those days. <laughs> no, McInerney, you're playing uh, Aegean in the Comedy of Errors, who's a 70-year-old man. Perfect. And I was 14. And there were two things I remember from being on stage, which is the stage in the school hall. We didn't have a special theatre or anything. Um, one was being on stage and thinking, why am I the only person on stage taking this seriously? Mm. And it was kind of, it wasn't really a revelation. It was just, I just found myself asking that whilst we were doing it because people were messing about and, and losing concentration and stuff because, you know, it's a school play, for goodness sake. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing was that when I was talking, when I was saying my lines, looking out and seeing two, three hundred, whatever, parents and teachers listening to every word you said. It's an amazing moment, isn't it? Yeah. The amazing thing, isn't it? To realise at that age. Adults. Yeah, adults are paying attention to me. Yeah. 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 And to be perfectly honest, it's felt like that ever since, really. <laughs> <laughs> I still feel as though I'm, I'm the little boy who's being paid attention to by the grown-ups. Mm. I remember my first play. I played uh, Judge Danforth in The Crucible. Oh, wow. Again, a ridiculous thing for somebody to do at that age yeah and the thing that i remember about it was um actually my father my father said to me um do you want to go through the words and i said oh okay because it hadn't occurred to me that it was worth doing it in front of someone before you did it in front of an audience right so i'd sort of learn it in my head and then i'll say it and uh so i went through it in front of him and he said so where are you when you're saying this speech and i said um i'm in the prison he said right so what's the prison like i said um I don't know. He said, what, straw on the floor? Rats, is it? Is that, Do they wash? Is it smelly? And I went, uh, yeah. 
Yeah. And you know, my performance changed completely just with those few thoughts. Sure. So in fact, it was one of the best pieces of direction I've ever received. You know, wow. I had a little handkerchief with that. I, he said, imagine it's got perfume in it and you're just avoiding the smell. And, I, and then I realised actually that, that, like you, that that thing of really taking on the character or believing you were the person had an effect. Yeah. So uh, I was reading Lord of the Rings and things like that at that age, which right. uh, you know, just an escape, really. That's the sort of thing yeah. I was looking for. Creating new worlds, going into, going into worlds that, that, that mm. for the length of time you're in them are the world. Yes. You know. Yeah. Oh, no, Lord of the Rings definitely was very important. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. I had a whole summer where basically all I was doing was, was traveling through Middle Earth. <laughs> it was better <laughs> than the world outside. Definitely. Okay, right. Well, <laughs> because of that pleasure, and uh, to allow you that pleasure again, and also that marvellous feeling of finally being allowed into the world of, of adults, we'll put you walking into the library and walking through the children's section. And as you go through, I'm going to have almost celestial music playing. Oh, absolutely. That goes into the time capsule. Yeah, it's uh, a cathedral-like feeling. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. And everybody stops and turns and looks and goes, <laughs> he's here, finally, he's here. This boy shall go to Oxford. <laughs> All right, lovely. What's your second item, Tim? Um, my second item, um, talking about my dad, is I actually have here... Oh, brilliant. Of this. Can you see that? Yeah, yeah, that's a really lovely... Pencil drawing, is it? Yeah, it's a it's a pencil drawing by my dad of the actress Jean Simmons. Oh, it is indeed. Yeah, I can see that completely. Did he know her? No, no. It's from a it's from a, a publicity still for Androcles and the Lion. Yeah, but it's uh, it was a very very long time ago. But it's 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 rather beautiful. Was he an artist, or did he just do it for the fun of it? This is the thing. This is what it what it means to me. Apart from being a memory of my dad, is that. That thing of, um, I think everybody, and literally everybody, has something artistic within them. Very few people get the chance to indulge that mm. in any way, as as a professional or as an amateur, you know. And my dad, he drew, he painted, he wrote poetry, um, as we discovered later, because he never showed it to us. <laughs> really? <laughs> that, ge that generation, you know. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. And um, and yet, he ended up working in the civil service. He had a scholarship to uh, in those days. He had a scholarship to a grammar school when he was fourteen, but his father said, "Oh no, you don't." Uh, when I was fourteen, I left school and got an apprenticeship, and that's what you're doing. Yeah, and his life would have been completely different. That is the joy of university, isn't it? I think, and going off to university is you don't necessarily go to study something; you go to find out what you want to do. Absolutely, absolutely. You get to grow up partly to, to you yes. know you're you're being allowed to grow up in in relatively cosseted surroundings. You know. Well, we certainly were. Yeah, we had the advantages of also having grants and everything. It was very easy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think it's it's very different world now. Mm. If there hadn't been the grant system, uh, my parents couldn't have afforded to send me to Oxford. No way. No. And that's a great waste, isn't it, I think, of a whole uh, generation of people. I think that, that is the case now, that despite the claims for scholarships and all sorts of help for people, people don't like to ask for help. Yeah. That's the problem. 
So it may be there, but they're not necessarily taking advantage of it. Yeah. In our day, we probably could have got help. A lot of them were, were too proud to ask for that help anyway. Mm. They'd been through the war. You know, that's the, that's <laughs> yeah. the thing you always remember. And it was, a, it was a new world that was supposed to look after you and broaden everybody's horizons. You know? mm. And it did. Well, absolutely for us, yes. But for your father's generation, that whole thing of, of that opportunity but not being able to take it, and then spending your whole life, in a way, secretly hankering after that life. Tough, isn't it? Absolutely. I think he had an artistic personality that was damped down, you know. Yeah. I mean, by himself yeah. as well, because, you know, uh, he had six kids. Wow. So, you know. There's a certain amount of practicality involved in earning a living, of course. But, I mean, what was uh, amazing about my father was that, well, both my parents, but was that, uh, unlike his own father, was that however little money he had and however hard he had to work, he wanted his kids to have a better life than him. Yes. You know, and wanted them to have the opportunities he never had. Mm. So he didn't carry on that... Uh, that tradition of it, it's, you know, if it's good enough for me, it's good enough for you. I never met that grandfather, uh, and I'm kind of glad I didn't, to be honest. Yes, but maybe his reaction was was to that uh, that injustice. Maybe he, he felt that keenly and therefore thought, I'll never let my children go through that. Yeah. If they want to do something, I'm going to give them the chance. Absolutely, yes. Mm. I'm sure that's true. So did he draw often? No. No, he didn't. No. No. Very, very rarely. Uh, he could sing as well. He had a, a, a kind of a, a light tenor, like um, like uh, John McCormack, people like that. Those those Irish yeah. sort of operatic, but also musical. It's um, He was always singing. <laughs> yeah, lovely. Yeah. But uh, ran the transport section of uh, Ministry of Defence site for the civil service attached to the RAF. Weird. Somebody's got to do it. No, oh, yeah. God, yes. So after his death, you discovered this poetry, or did you know about it at all before then? Um, no, I didn't know about it at all. I just we discovered his poetry after he after he died. Yeah, and a lot of it was to um, there were lots of things written to his father, um, not horrible things at all. Things of love, it's extraordinary. Mm. Well, I should imagine he understood his father's situation. You often yeah. do, don't you? Certainly in retrospect. Yeah, At the time, it may, it may rankle, but uh, eventually you, you go, and I see exactly where you were coming from. Yeah, sure. But, you know, you recognise when things have come out of love, even though they may be mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. How lovely. Well, that is, it is a beautiful drawing, Tim, and it's really lovely. Yeah, it really is. When somebody is able to draw that well, that's not a practised art, is it? That's a natural skill. I would say so. I would say so, mm. yeah. I don't know whether he was taught art in any way at school. I wouldn't imagine so. My father did one painting in his life. Yeah. Uh, and amazingly, it was an oil painting. He did it during the war. Wow. He was uh, in that period when everybody was waiting for the invasion of, of Normandy. Right. They had that long, hot summer, and nobody did anything. We just sat and waited. And he said that he had a friend who painted, and he used to go out and sunbathe. And one day his mate said, well, will you have a go? So he painted a, a tree with some sheep under it and some clouds. And it's really beautiful. And as far as I'm aware, it's the only painting he ever did. Wow. It's very, um, it's an impressionist painting. Yeah. But he never did it again. 
How extraordinary. Mm. How extraordinary. It's like, I, I guess, maybe that's the equivalent of people um, having a novel in them and writing yeah. one and then that's it. I've done it now. Possibly the same thing that your father suffered, which is that my father then got a job as a solicitor and had a family to keep and had to do that work. And that was a lot of work. And sure. so, you know, when are you going to sit down and do oil painting? <laughs> uh, oh, no, uh, absolutely. Expensive things, oil paint. Yeah, quite. But anything else. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tim, lovely. Well, I'm going to take that gorgeous picture of... Gene Simmons. Gene Simmons. <gasps> oh, <laughs> just a little moment of reverie there. Absolutely. Gene Simmons, beautiful woman. Yes, well, we'll take that gorgeous picture and put it in there safely into the time capsule. Thank you. With your entrance into the adult library. They're both in there. I'll hang it. Hang it on the wall in the library. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. So what's your third item? Right, we're going to take a short break to play advert or silence. You have to guess if what follows is an advert or silence. Vote now. Good luck. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome back. If you were right, you get five bonus points. Collect over a thousand to receive a badge saying, I wasted my life. Right, let's stop messing about and find out what else Tim McInerney would like to put in his time capsule. Uh, my third item is, is a memory, not from that long ago, actually. Uh, a few years ago, um, I'd been to... Athens two or three times, but I'd never, <laughs> extraordinarily, I'd never bothered to go up the hill to the Acropolis and see the Parthenon. Really? And then, yeah, I know. And then Annie, Annie, as you know, is my 
partner. It's weird to say partner. We've been together 24 years, but uh, anyway. Like Scrooge and Marley. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I wouldn't like to say which was which, obviously. <laughs> and she, uh, and so we, we went to Athens as part of a holiday, and we went up the hill, and I just wasn't, I wasn't ready for it. I'd seen a lot of beautiful things in my life, you know, the Sistine Chapel, things, stuff like that, great paintings, whatever. But I got up there, and something just hit me. It was quite extraordinary. And I actually had to ask Annie to go away because hmm. I had to be on my own, looking around on my own. There were very few people there, like three or four people there, very lucky. And I just cried. It was the most extraordinary feeling I'd ever had that something could be so it's, it was like, it was, I mean, obviously it's, it, it's partly a ruin, et cetera, but it's, but it's something so perfect on a beautiful sunny day on the top of a hill and all my childhood. I mean, when we were talking about um, what we used to read, I used to read a lot of the myths of the Greek and Romans and the Norse gods mm. and all that, all that stuff. I loved, loved all that stuff. Mm. And it all came rushing back and it was kind of too much. Yeah. It was overwhelming. And I just um, sobbed and I can see myself there now. Uh, and that was only like, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah. To a certain extent, it's a bit of a waste. I should have been there when I was in my 20s. But anyway. It's quite easy, isn't it, to forget those things about yourself, to to forget that you once had that passion, and then suddenly it will be triggered in you. Yeah. I mean, I I do think that's one of the nice things about our job, when we're allowed to do it, you know, (laughs) (laughs) is that it's a job that opens up new worlds to us all the time new ways of thinking, because you have to take on board the, the, the way your character thinks, the way other characters think, et cetera, the way the, 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 the writer thinks. Um, you'll, you meet new people all the time. You meet young people all the time. Yes. Young yes. actors all the time. And you see your, or you should do, uh, I, I hope I do, you'd see their, their passion, their enthusiasm, and you rem- it makes you remember what you were like when you were 25 yeah. and fires you up again. That's very true. I mean, if I, if I became cynical and bitter about acting, then I would stop. I don't see the point. You know, I don't think you can do the job properly, actually. And you see actors, you see very good actors who've, as a matter of self-preservation, and I absolutely understand it, who've, who've learned to put up shields, but they put up shields before the world, but also before the work. And you can't really... You can do it technically, you can be clever, but if you're not opening out, it's not really worth it. And you say that about, uh, you know, when we get the chance to, and I know that at the moment that's a, a great problem. But I've always been amazed at the conversations I've had with you in the past, that you've had periods where just everything seemed to stop. I mean, I know I joke about Tim McInerney, the three best actors in Britain, but you are a, one of the, the country's great actors, I think. Oh. Well, there's no doubt about it, Tim. And the fact that you have gone through very long periods where just nothing was happening, yep. it, it does demonstrate what a difficult job this can be, I think. Absolutely. It's, it's um, Keeping that uh, faith in yourself is, is extremely difficult. 
mm. at times. I mean, I've always you have periods where you where the jobs tumble over themselves and you can't you know and you're trying to fit things in all the time and and then and it's like you fall off a cliff suddenly nothing no interviews nothing for six months and you just think oh that's it i've had a good run <laughs> i've been found out <laughs> yeah and people in the street are saying to you oh you're in game of thrones and you yeah. go, not at the moment <laughs> when you do a good job you forget about the bad times yeah yeah the brain's a very clever thing yes the moment the work comes along, you think, yeah, this is what I was born to do. Yeah. And it'll never stop again. <laughs> <laughs> exactly so. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you on the top of the hill in Athens uh, by the Acropolis. I did actually, I did actually um, hitch to Greece when I was 17. Yeah. Gap year, you know, 17, 18. I got as far as Corfu and um, ended up staying there uh, with a bunch of German students and... Smoked a lot of dope and ran out of money. I had to come home. <laughs> never got to the mainland. So never saw the Acropolis? <laughs> no. Never had that opportunity? No. <laughs> yes. We went to Corfu briefly, and I had a similar experience as yours standing on the, the Acropolis. I had been an absolute devotee of Gerald Durrell as a young man. Ah, uh, yeah. Read every book. So was I. Yeah. So was I. I'd forgotten about all that. I uh, loved it. Absolutely yeah. loved it. But I remember standing there on Corfu, and we went to uh, one of his houses, the Pink House. Right. And I, 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 you know, again, you know, I found it sort of overwhelming because I, I, I so loved him. Gosh, yes. Just a lovely thing and a lovely thing to re-experience, I think. So we're going to put that in there. And uh, any time you like, you can shade your eyes from the sun and look out <laughs> across <laughs> Athens. <laughs> That's lovely. Okay, we've got two more things to go, Tim. Now, this is, this is strange. Uh, this, <laughs> this is Titch. Okay, so you're holding up uh, a a bear. A bear, yeah. A, a almost naked bear in the sense that it has very little fur. Very little hair. Very little fur. Yeah. Um, Titch belonged to my brother, so I got to keep him after my brother died. Uh, my brother died in uh, uh, 1992. Um, mm. And I don't even know how long he'd had Titch. But the thing is, it's, um, I mean, again, the same thing with my father. It's not just, it's not just uh, uh, a memory of my brother. I've got several things that belong to my brother. And we shared a house for five years. We lived, we lived together uh, for a while. We got an increase. He was nine years older than me. But um, it's that there are th things like that that mean uh, a great deal to my my family are all very close they're all very close there's i mean i always say there are six kids there's only five of us now but um uh, of course but uh us and my parents were always very very close and i see uh i mean you've met my you met my sister lizzie i work with your sister lizzie yeah yes of course mm. of course of, mm. of course absolutely um and we see each other all the time and things like things like Titch uh, are the kind of there are there are there are symbol of the glue that holds you together. You know what I mean? Yes. So that's what it means when I when I see Titch and Titch, you know, sits proudly in the lounge. But uh, <laughs> he reminds me of my brother. But he also he reminds me of the good times we've all had together. The family. 
Do you know what I mean? Yeah, family. Family. Yeah. And I'm very yeah. lucky. I used to think I used to think all families were like mine. And then you gradually realize as you go through life and, and people tell you their stories that actually I'm terribly lucky. And a lot of people don't get on with their brothers and sisters or have been thrown out of their homes or, you know, don't get on with their parents for whatever reason, you know. Uh, I find it so hard to imagine because I know that I could always rely on any one of them in a difficult situation. Always. No problem at all. And that's a, it's a fantastic thing to know you have, you know. Uh, of the six of us, three of us were professional actors and two of the other three were amateur actors. And none, none of that came from my parents. I mean, apart from their artistic sensibility, but, uh, you know, they didn't, they didn't do it. It's weird. But there must have been an atmosphere in the house, though. I that, guess. That, the, the love of it, I think. I suppose so, yes. There must have been. There must have been. Uh, I can't really remember. I mean, it was encouraged, but we didn't even go to, we didn't go to the theatre or even pantomimes at Christmas. No. We didn't even do that. We would watch dramas on the TV. I mean, and I was encouraged to watch dramas on the TV from a very early age. And I, I would remember things like, like uh, you know, if I was, I don't know, 10 years old, I would be, you know, because we had to go to bed early in those days, as you know, Michael. Yeah. You know. We weren't indulged like children are now. <laughs> Bless them. <laughs> well, we couldn't take the teddy to bed with us. No, exactly. No, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Yes. But my um, my dad would call me downstairs because I'd be allowed, I'd be allowed to stay up to watch, say, a Jimmy Cagney film on BBC Two. Yeah, proper acting. That was where I learnt about acting and stuff. Was from was from all that really. Mm. I guess, it, or it slowly went in, and I didn't realise. You know, it's a good school, though. Absolutely. My favorite film actor, actually, was um, um, Montgomery Clift was my favorite. Oh, right. Yeah. I loved yes. Montgomery Clift. An understated actor. Yeah, he was he was understated. He was one of the first actors who was um, sort of method, really, I guess, and incredibly emotionally raw. Uh, it's kind of painful to watch it sometimes, even now. So uh, what did your brother do? Do you mind me asking? Well, my brother who died, he was an he was an actor. He was an actor as well. Yeah, I never met him. I don't think. No, he did. He did bits and pieces. He was he was actually moving into um, directing, which I think he would have been very good at. He directed a couple of things at the King's Head, that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, he was going into that, but he wasn't. He wasn't so driven. He loved it, but not at the expense of the good time he could have doing other things. <laughs> <laughs> What I loved about my brother was that he's the least hypocritical person I ever met, ever. Mm. Absolutely extraordinary. I couldn't do that. I mean, you know, we spend our whole time slagging people off and then meeting them and going, oh, darling, you're marvellous. But um, <laughs> my brother just couldn't do that. He wouldn't do it. He always told the truth. It was just an extraordinary person. Had a good person to have around, I think, particularly as a brother. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, you were shit in that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, oh, God, yes. We all need to be told that sometimes. <laughs> That's, it comes from my wife, and it, it's generally what she says about every performance. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless her. <laughs> oh, Titch. I don't have any toys from when I was a, a little boy. I don't, I never, those are gone, and actually I can't even remember what they were. I don't think I had any. I certainly didn't have a, I didn't have a teddy bear or anything like that. Um, no, my sister Lizzie has still got hers. She had one, 
Uh, I don't remember anything like that. Well, we're going to put Titch in there to remind <laughs> you of your brother and, and your family. So the whole thing, yeah. it's sort of encapsulated in this lovely little, very worn teddy bear. He is. Okay. Right, we come to your final item, Tim. Yes, indeed. Yes. Now, my final item would be... Uh, I'm trying to choose as I'm talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> I think it has to be somehow... One song in particular, but the most important person in popular music to me was always David Bowie. Uh, uh, and I think Heroes is one of the greatest songs ever written in any genre. It was very important to me. Um, I saw Bowie 10 times live. Really? Yeah. Back to way back in the, in the seventies. Uh, and obviously I had all the albums. I had all the, I, I even had the tin machine albums. That That's how big a fan I was. <laughs> Nobody bought those. <laughs> no, not even David Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, there was one wonderful, I, th I think it was the last time he toured here because then he had a, he had a heart thing. I mean, you know, years and years ago, long before he died. Where he had to have a stent put in and stuff, and he and he he didn't tour. He didn't uh, actually do touring anymore. But he, uh, I saw him in Paris one week and in London the next. And actually, the tickets for the London I do remember distinctly Wembley Arena. The tickets for the London concert had been bought by a friend of mine, and I was sitting next to him, going, um, "Oh, well, that's interesting. He didn't play that song last week. <laughs> it was a completely different set." To which uh, uh, I would have a volley of abuse from my friend who actually bought the tickets. Yeah. Did you see him as Ziggy Stardust? No, I didn't see him as Ziggy. No, no. In fact, I didn't see him live until 76, 77, 76, 77. Yeah. So you would have been just too young, really, to see Ziggy, wouldn't you? That was the early 70s, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, I would. I didn't pick up on him straight away. It took uh, until about... Second, third, after Hunky Dory, I think, I guess. I mean, I've, I, I had all the, all the albums. I actually met him once. I met him once. I was introduced to him. Oh my God, that's extraordinary. And a play. A play. I didn't, I couldn't talk. I just came over as a complete idiot. I was just like, mm. hello, Tim. So, um, yeah, um, <laughs> and he moved on to somebody else, quite rightly. You know. Yes. Actually, that was another thing. You never heard bad stories about David Bowie. He was always, uh, everybody loved him. He was always terribly kind and generous uh, mm. artistically and in his private life, as far as you can tell, you know. The, the actor Steve Steen. Do you know Steve? The improviser. Yeah. Jim Sweeney and Steve Steen used to work together. But anyway, Steve Steen said that he played in a little club in Beckenham, which David Bowie had started. Right. That, and he used to get up and perform and he, when he was about... 12, 13, him and his mate decided to get up and sing a song, and it wasn't going very well, and then suddenly the whole audience picked up, and somebody was playing the tambourine behind them, and it was David Bowie. <laughs> wow. And he said he, he knew that he'd done it because he could see these boys were dying, you know, and so he just thought, I'll give them a help. That's amazing. And apparently he was, he was number one at the time with uh, Starman. So Good grief. Amazing. That's extraordinary. Yeah. Isn't it? That's extraordinary. Yes. I mean, I do mm. want to um, have um, 
heroes played at my funeral, which I don't intend to, you know, to have for a very, very long time yet, <laughs> obviously, you know. Yes. And I think he, uh, th- there was a wonderful thing. When, when, he, when he died, which was so shocking, um, when he died, Annie and I were away for the weekend. We were a weekend in, on the coast somewhere. They'd just gone away for a long weekend. And the whole weekend was kind of, was kind of ruined because uh, I just couldn't function. But I do remember I, was, I sat up all because there were there were there were programs about him all night, and I sat up all night watching them. And I do remember somebody saying I can't remember who it was now. Somebody saying that he was a, he was an artist who happened to work in the medium of popular music, <laughs> and I thought that was a beautiful way of putting it. You know, mm. you know. There's very few people yeah. like that. For me, there's nobody else like him. I think for your sake and for everybody's sake, we should put David Bowie into a time capsule. Totally good. But then uh, we hardly need to preserve him because I think he'll be there anyway. That's very true. Yeah. That's absolutely mm. true. Yes, of course. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Well, I'm, I'm tempted to give you one more <laughs> item if you wanted it. But because actually there is a sort of a rule that, that you're supposed to put one thing in that you want to get rid of from your life. Yeah. Have you got that? Well, I've got one thing, which is, again, is um, is a memory. I mean, there were all sorts of things that pop into your head, like Boris Johnson and Donald Trump spring to mind, you know. but uh, <laughs> Or the person who actually fractured the meaning of society in this country, which is Margaret Thatcher. But... Um, but actually, in the end, I thought, no, what really used to bug me so much is something uh, far more trivial, which is um, a song. Do you remember that? Do you remember this song? It's my least favorite song of all time, uh, which is Son of My Father by Chicory Tip. I do. 1972. Mm. ba 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 is that annoying you already? <laughs> also, the I, I think possibly the ugliest group who've ever appeared on top of the pops. It's all um, <laughs> mullets and yeah, f- oh god! I thought it was disgusting. I hated <laughs> it. I've been kind of people don't quite understand how how um, how I can hate something. So I mean, you know, they they didn't have a great many hits or anything. They only lasted for three years. Although the music for Son of My Father, you wouldn't. Be, was, I think it was the first time at, um, that. A Moog synthesizer had been used in a in a, a number one pop single, uh, or certainly one of the early days, anyway. Mm. Um, uh, but the music was written by Giorgio Moroder. No, isn't that extraordinary? Yeah, isn't that extraordinary. But I just thought they were the least charismatic, worst dressed, worst haircut. I just hated the song so much. I can't tell you. And if I could forget it, I would. Yeah. Well, you know. I'm going to say the phrase "little drummer boy" to you, but uh, <laughs> just to, just to show you that everybody can make a mistake. You know. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. There were many things from that period, in, as far as music is concerned, that really should be banished. Yeah. But I think, yeah, son of my father, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> Okay, I'm happy to put that into the time capsule, Tim. <laughs> I'm very pleased. I'm going to seal it up. It's going in a, a, its own little soundproof box. Fantastic. So it won't be echoing in the background in the library. <laughs> <laughs> like a busker standing outside. Can we get rid of that busker, please, singing that bloody song? Thank you. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Tim, it's been 
absolutely gorgeous to talk to you. I do, of course, have to, because I'd be in trouble otherwise. I do have to also have to give another little mention to Annie, who would obviously go wherever I go uh, yeah. in this life or in any other afterlife, because uh, without her, I'm not sure I'd even be alive. But it's all right. It's your time capsule. Take her in with you. <laughs> you know, go for a holiday. Don't go to Deal. Don't go down the coast. Yeah, she's a stowaway. It's going to be great. All right. Thanks, Tim. It's been a joy. Great have a, pleasure. Have a lovely day. Cheers, Mike. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Tim McInerney. You can subscribe to this podcast on Acast, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, or wherever you usually get your podcasts. And if you have the time, we'd really appreciate it if you would rate us and leave a review. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at MyTCPod or at Fenton Stevens. This podcast was produced by John Fenton Stevens, and the music is by Past the Peas Music. It was a cast-off production. So, until next time, I'll leave you with this little sound worm. But you'll be stuck with that for the rest of the day. See ya! Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.